Our Father, we thank you for the joy of the Lord, which, as the scripture teaches, is our strength. And we know, Lord, that it is from you that we derive the, the very essence of life day by day. Life is a gift from God. And Father, it is our responsibility then to live that life in accordance with the plan that you have set out before each one of us. And Father, as we study from the word this morning, I pray that we individually will acquire that inspiration, that uh, conviction where that's necessary, that encouragement, whatever is your purpose in our hearts today that will enable us to better serve you and to be the people you have called us to be. Oh, Father, I guess our greatest struggle in life is becoming the person you want us to be, and yet that is our deepest desire. We ask you to empower our thinking and our spirits through the working of your Holy Spirit today in the, through the Word of God. And wherever the Word is, is being taught this morning in our Sunday school and in the service, we ask that uh, you will make it truly life, living, moving as the Scripture teaches to the very core of our being, to the very joint and marrow of our, of our inner being. Lord, we ask you to glorify yourself here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'll turn to the 21st chapter of Joshua, Joshua chapter 21. We have, over these many weeks now, been looking at the conquest of the land of Canaan. And we have been looking at God's faithfulness to his people and this passage and the next passage that is the first part of the next chapter highlight God's faithfulness in the midst of all of this. So let's read verses 43 and to 45. So the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. And the Lord gave them rest on every side according to all he, that he had sworn to their fathers. And no one of all their enemies stood before them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hand. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. This passage, of course, reminds us that although Israel conquered the land of Canaan by force of arms, that it was actually the Lord who gave them the land. They could not stand on any corner of the land and say, this is the land which I have conquered and which I have acquired. They had no right to be as, as Nebuchadnezzar had been or would yet be in terms of what uh, we're looking at here chronologically, who would stand on the roof of his great palace and say, is this not great Babylon which I have built? And every time I read that passage, it reminds me of B.C., where every once in a while, you know, something happens and this, there's this voice coming down from heaven, you know. And that, of course, is what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. God basically told him, no, this isn't what you have done. And so it was not for Israel. Their real strength was not in their military ability, but in their faith and in their obedience. And in the world in which we live, that's hard to grasp. Because we live in a world where everything is high energy and, and you get to the top of whatever your career is by stepping on the others that are down below, uh, by cutting corners, by whatever it takes to get to the top. And when you get to the top, you say, I have done this. But in the Christian life, it is not so. 
Uh, we gain, we, we achieve what we achieve within God's great kingdom through faith and obedience. And many people look at faith and obedience as wimpy in this world. They look at it as wimpy. But of course, uh, many of those people who look at it thusly, when they're in a very, very tight corner, I keep being amazed how often God is spoken about in the midst of tragedies and crises. Now, in many cases, it's because some of the people in that tragedy and that crisis are Christians, as was true in this Colorado high school uh, thing. But so many times people speak of God when they wouldn't ordinarily say God's name except in vain. Israel's quest for the promised land was, as we, we know from so many sermons in our, uh, that we've heard through our lives, is, is parallel to the human quest for, for heaven. No matter how much Israel wanted the promised land, nor how much they strove for it, they never would have gained it without God giving it to them. God gave them the promised land. And so likewise, no matter how much someone desires heaven, strives to attain it, believes they should have it, it will not be theirs except as a gift from God. Heaven is a gift from God. We, we have to, I, I think, constantly remind ourselves we do not achieve heaven. We do not become members in the kingdom of God because we have earned it, because we have jumped through the necessary hoops in order to reach that desirable place. And that, of course, is one of the uniquenesses of Christianity. It is only through the gift of God's grace that we inherit eternal life. And we know that and we hear it because m most of us have read you know, Ephesians chapter 2 where it clearly tells us that it is a gift from God. It is not of works because if it were from works then we could boast and say, hey, I, you know, I have what I have deserved. But we must trust and obey. And in our trusting and obedience we have to also realize that that doesn't earn us heaven either. We don't earn heaven because we have trust, we trust and obey. But our trust and our obedience demonstrates the reality of the faith and of the genuineness of our conversion. I, I think that's clear as, as we study through the book of James, or as you may study through the book of James, that uh, what, whatever it is we achieve, whatever God does through us, simply demonstrates a reality that is al already there. It doesn't give us the right for eternal life. It doesn't give us faith. What, what is interesting is you compare Christianity to all the man-invented religions. And of course, in our pluralistic society, people don't like to look at it that way. They view us as being bigoted if we think that the only way to, to the kingdom of heaven is, is through Christianity, through the life of Christ. Uh, and of course, the argument is, what about all the millions, hundreds of millions of Buddhists and Hindus and, and is people of Islam? How could they all be going to hell? What kind of a God could you have that would, uh, would do that? But as you look at all the other religions other than Christianity, they have one trait in common, and that is you gain reward by human effort. You gain your reward from the deities by your effort. You, you make yourself worthy in their sight. Whereas in Christianity, that's not possible. You and I cannot make ourselves worthy in God's sight. It's not within our ability because we are, of course, fallen human beings. And that worthiness comes only because Christ's image has been superimposed on ours. 
and by his blood we have been made right. Looking at Israel, if Israel were to have depended solely upon their own military might, their strength in the flesh, uh, they would have re remained forever desert nomads. Just think, just think about that. Think of all those nomadic tribes that live out there today in Saudi Arabia or uh, in Iraq or Iran. Uh, Israel would have been just one of those tribes, probably would have died out a long time ago because as you read through the Old Testament, how many of those Old Testament people can you identify today? Well, very few actually. Uh, the scripture talks about the Hittites. There are no living Hittites. The scripture talks about the Horites. There are no living Horites. Uh, the scripture talks about the Midianites. There are no identifiable Midianites today. Talks about the Assyrians. And even though there is a, quote, Assyrian church, and there are some people who claim to be descended from the ancient Assyrians, there's some doubt about that. Uh, th there aren't any people today that you can say are Babylonians. No. Certainly, the blood of those people does circulate in some of those people who live in the Middle East today, but you cannot identify it, you cannot trace it. But Israel is traceable from Abraham to this very day. Not because Israel was so wonderful, but because God was faithful to his people, even in the midst of their disobedience, as we'll be looking as we proceed into the 22nd chapter of, uh, of Joshua. However, as we look at the conquest of the land and the events which transpired related to that, we discover that even with God's help, Israel's efforts at the conquest were insufficient because they did not obey God's command to completely drive out the Canaanites. God chose to drive out the Canaanites through his people. So wherever his people did not make the effort, the Canaanites were not driven out. Yet, in spite of these failures, God in his mercy did give them the land. They did occupy Canaan, although not all of the land that God had authorized for them to have and commanded for them to take. I think this should remind us of the fact that although it is God who overwhelms the enemy, it is God who defeats the evil one. If we, as his people, do not faithfully and obediently continue in the fight, stay in there in the battle, complete what he given to receive them. In verses, in, the, in this passage that we have read this morning, there are references to God's promises to the ancestors. And let me just turn back to uh, the end of Deuteronomy. And in the fourth verse here, we're reminded, Then the Lord said to him, This is the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. And this, of course, he is speaking to Moses. Part of the reason God gave Israel the land of Canaan was because he had promised it to them clear back in the days of Abraham, which he, he lived somewhere in the neighborhood of half a millennium prior to this time. And God had promised it to Abraham, he had promised it to Isaac, promised it to Jacob, promised it to their descendants. And now he is fulfilling that promise. And they are the recipients of, of that blessing. God gave the enemies of Israel into their hands, except those that Israel didn't even try to drive out. And there were others besides, and we, we noted that as we read through, besides the Gibeonites who 
pulled off the ruse, and, and, and that was you know, understandable, not understandable that they were hoodwinked by that, but why they would allow them to remain. But others were allowed to remain too. They remained because Israel wearied of the task. And what they did was they, they looked at the might of the remaining Canaanites in the land. They saw, oh, the iron chariots, the armies, the mighty forces they have, and they looked at that rather than looking at the might of God. That's where we all fail. We all fail when we start looking at the, the enemies we face. They're too big for us. We can't deal with them. Of course we can't deal with them. God doesn't expect us to deal with them in our strength. Just as the old, uh, you know, the story of David and Goliath, God didn't expect David to fight Goliath in his own strength. God empowered him to do the, do the job. And, and so it was with Israel. God was there to empower them to complete the task, and yet they got tired of it. They, they wanted to stop, and, and, and they saw the enemies as too powerful, and yet what, God had, what had God just done for them? I mean, they had defeated the mighty southern confederacy, overwhelmed them, destroyed them, and then the even greater northern confederacy with all of their iron chariots. God had given them overwhelming victory. So why are they looking at these other people saying, oh, we can't beat them because they have iron chariots. What about all the wrecked iron chariots from the previous campaign, you know? How quickly do we forget the victories God gives us? That's one of the reasons the Bible is so repetitive, it seems like sometimes to us. Uh, you have whole, whole psalms given over to uh, just a constant recounting of what God did for Israel, and that's because we are, our forgetters are better than our rememberers. At least mine is. And God wants us to remember the great things he has done. Why? Just so that we, you know, because God wants to be held in greater exaltation? Well, I don't think that's the primary motivating factor. I think the primary motivating factor is so that we will be inspired to trust him to do the tasks which remain to be done. As long as God gives us breath on this life, God has a purpose for us to be here. As soon as God's purpose for us is done, we're gone. We're out of here. There's no such thing as someone being left here just to wither on the vine with no remaining purpose. God uses everyone in whatever physical, mental condition they are in yet to achieve some purpose. You may not even be aware of what that purpose is, but God wants us to be obedient and trusting even in the midst of that. Now, had Israel persevered and trusted God for the remaining land that was given to them, had they driven out the remaining pockets of, Midian, of Canaanites in the land, they would have ended up with 50% more territory than they had. They would have possessed all, virtually all of what is today Lebanon. They would have possessed the territory almost up to Damascus itself. Uh, they would have possessed further territories on the east side of the Jordan and further to the south than they did. At least 50% more land than they actually did acquire would have been theirs. And there would not have been these little internal pockets of Canaanites here and there and somewhere else to constantly be infecting them spiritually bringing in these, these disruptive ideas concerning false worship. And God's whole plan in getting them out of the land of Canaan was that that would not be there. It's easier to deal with religions that come from the, false religion that comes from the outside because they're viewed as alien than religions that are from within. God's promises are without price 
and they cannot be earned. But they do come with conditions. Salvation, for example, is a gift from God, but it comes on one condition, and that condition is the condition of repentance. Repentance precedes salvation. And all of the promises to God that we find in this scripture are also dependent upon two conditions. The conditions of faith and obedience. And this becomes illustrated over and over again in the life of Israel. Notice the emphasis uh, in verses 43 and 44 on the phrase, the Lord gave. The Lord gave Israel the land. The Lord gave Israel rest. The Lord gave Israel victory. From whence comes our rest? From whence comes our victory? From whence comes our possessions? From the Lord. It's all from the Lord. In later years, when Israel would cease to trust and obey, Israel would lose their peace. The shalom would be gone. And of course, we all remember the story. It comes pretty soon, actually, of Gideon. And he's down there inside a threshing floor, down here thrashing some grain, peeking up every once in a while, make sure no Midianite is looking. What kind of peace is that? It's not peace. The peace was removed because of their disobedience. Then they would lose their battles. They would lose battles to the enemy nations, sometimes horribly. And then finally, they lost the land itself. They lost the land itself. It was not a, you know, an immediate process. It was a slow process. But they lost the land. They lost it to the Assyrians, and then they lost it to the Babylonians. And then they would lose it to the Romans. And then finally, the Romans would eject them from the land altogether. And they would be cast into what is known as the diaspora. And God had promised that that's what would happen if they did not adhere in faith and obedience to his word. In verse 45, we have a testimony in the midst of all of this to the faithfulness and power of God. It tells us, not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. But they didn't all come to pass to, to the fullest extent that they could have had Israel been fully obedient. Let's look on in the next chapter. Chapter 22, Then Joshua summoned the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and have listened to my voice in all that I commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days to this day, but have kept the charge of the commandment of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he spoke to them. Therefore, turn now and go to your tents, to the land of your possession, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan. Only be careful to observe the commandments and the law, which, the, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, to love the Lord your God and walk in his ways and keep his commandments and hold fast to him and serve him with all of your heart and with all of your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away. They went to their tents. The 22nd chapter of Joshua deals with interesting events and some very important lessons that are associated with those events. When Israel conquered Transjordan, that is, the land which would be acquired by Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, 
there was a condition attached. And that condition was, it was, was put there by Moses, certainly under the inspiration of God. And that is that if they received the land, they then would fight on behalf of the other nine and a half tribes that had not yet received their possession on the west side of the Jordan River. What you discover here is a, is a tremendous compliment here to these, to these men who fulfilled the promise. Let me just again remember, remind us of that promise in the 32nd chapter of Numbers. Numbers 32, reading at verse 20. So Moses said to them, to the men of Reuben, Gad, and half-tribe of Manasseh, If you will do this, if you will arm yourselves before the Lord for war, and all of your armed men cross over the Jordan before the Lord until he has driven his enemies out from before him, and the land is subdued before the Lord, then afterward you shall return and be free of obligation toward the Lord and toward Israel. And this land shall be yours for a possession before the Lord. Now when it says free of obligation, this doesn't of course mean that they could just then forget the Lord. It means this specific obligation of being in the battle army for the conquest of the land. This, this is a wonderful passage because here Joshua is commending these men of Israel. He's saying to the men of Reuben and of Gad and of the half-tribe of Manasseh that they have kept their word, that they have fought alongside the other tribes in the conquest of Canaan. They had remained committed to the onerous task of warfare. How onerous that can be is easily seen by just studying through the course of history. In the later part of the Roman Empire, in order to not serve in the Roman army, young Latin men would actually mutilate themselves so that they would be of no use to the army so they wouldn't have to serve. And of course, we know in more modern times that much of the rioting which broke out in the later part of the 60s was led by young men of college of draft age who didn't want to go to Vietnam. And so warfare is not an enjoyable task for most. And it was going to be seven years of warfare. I mean, these individuals were committed to fighting for seven years in the land of Canaan, wasn't even fighting for their land because they now had their land. They were fighting on behalf of their brothers, the other nine and a half tribes. And these men of, of the Transjordanian tribes on the east side of the Jordan River were a very special blessing to Joshua. I think every day when he got up and he saw the men of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh there, he said, thank you, Lord. And he thanked them, I think, because of their faithfulness to the task. They were a special blessing from the very beginning because they had vowed that they would wholeheartedly serve Joshua. You may remember when we were studying the beginning of the book, which actually wasn't that long ago. It was just last year, actually. But in verses 16 to 18 of the first chapter, these are, again, the men of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. They answered Joshua, saying, All that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. 
Now notice what he's, they say next. Anyone who rebels against your command and does not obey your words in all that you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. And can you imagine how that encouraged Joshua? These guys were committing him themselves to him, almost as if they were his personal army. It reminds me of, of Harold, king of England, back in the middle of the 11th century. may not remind you of him, but it reminds <laughs> me of him. <laughs> he became the Anglo-Saxon king of England, and immediately he was assaulted on two fronts. The king of Norway came over and landed in the north because he had a claim to the throne of England. And, and William of Normandy came across because he had a, a, a claim to the king of, to kingship in England. And yet there was this body of men, mounted warriors called the House Carls, who were absolutely dedicated to serving Harold in whatever way he needed. And they died by the thousands in the two battles because they were not the kind who gave ground. They held their ground and they stood fast in the face of the enemy. The other auxiliary troops would, would fight well when things were going well, but when they turned, they would run and scatter, you know. But these guys stood strong in the face of the battle. And so it would seem to Joshua, the men of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they were there. Every day they answered the roll call and every day they went into battle because they had vowed and they fulfilled that vow. Just think how encouraging that would have been to Joshua. And then translate that into our society today. How encouraging is it to the leaders of the Christian church when they have a core of people that stick with them through thick and thin? That as soon as there's a little argument, don't just say, sayonara, we're going to church of the third, you know, third whatever church down the street, you know, where we'll stay here through the thick of it. And I think that's one of the lessons that we can derive from this. We're not to be fickle, quick to fly Christians, but to stick with the task that God has given us to do, because the battle may be tough. And the battle isn't always victorious or doesn't seem always to be victorious, even though with God's with us, it is ultimately victorious. But there, you know, you, you read through the pages of, of Scripture and you discover that there were times when individual battles were lost, such as at Ai, and yet the overwhelming goal was the conquest of Canaan, and that was achieved. Joshua commended them very highly for their faithful service in aiding their brothers. And in this, they were a great example to us. There are many who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ, who make all kinds of promises and yet have no real intention or at least no follow-through to keep those promises. There are many who actually abandon and ignore their brothers and sisters in Christ. Sometimes it's inadvertent, but other times it is intentional. We're out of here. You guys want to do this, that's fine. But we're out of here. We're not standing with you in this battle. Now, of course, for most of us, we probably won't be literally on the battlefield someplace against an enemy, although some certainly will or have been, as the men of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh were. But whatever is the battle, the spiritual battles are actually more real than the physical battles. In the physical battle, you can see the enemy and you can kind of get the lay of the land. You know what your forces are. But in the spiritual battle, the enemy can blindside you. 
and the situation is not quite as clear often. But we are expected to be obedient and faithful as Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh were in the battle. We're expected to obey and serve the true leadership of the church with a capital C of the Lord Jesus Christ and to stand by our brothers and sisters in Christ through thick and thin. Which, of course, means encouraging the, 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 the distraught. Scripture teaches us to laugh with those who laugh and cry with those who cry. To, to minister healing wherever we can be that channel of blessing. Uh, to provide uh, material need wherever that can be. We are very grateful to you for the existence of the prayer link and, and the fact that we know that when a prayer item goes out, there are many who are joining together in prayer for this because we really feel that that's where the battle is actually won. There is a spiritual warfare raging across the surface of this planet. And I think that even in the things that are going on today, for example, in Kosovo, this is not just a physical battle. It's not just a battle between Serbs and Albanians. It's, it's a battle which has spiritual aspects to it. The enemy doesn't want the church to be established, uh, the true church to be established amongst the Serbians or to be established amongst the ethnic Albanians. You probably remember the little handout that came in the bulletin last week, week before, about the fact that there was, there is an infant church amongst the Kosovars. And there is an infant church in Albania itself. And, and the evangelical church even amongst the Serbs exists. In fact, you may remember one of the towns that was recently hit in fact, I think it was the very day after we, we got that thing in the bulletin, it talked about the bombing in the town where that man was pastoring a Serbian evangelical church. The Serbs are Orthodox. They belong to the larger entity known as the Greek Orthodox or simply Orthodox because there are so many varieties of Orthodox. And, and there are true believers within the Orthodox church, but like other churches that have become crystallized over the years, the, the doctrines of men are taught and replace the doctrines of, of true scripture. To me, this was so well illustrated when you saw the picture of the head of the Russian Orthodox Church over there kind of, you know, patting Milosevic on the back and, and trying to give him comfort. Well, to me, that, that's the clear point is, there, what we're dealing with here is not a, I mean, it's a spiritual situation, all right, but um, it, it's kind of like you're a Serb and you're an Orthodox, so you've got to be okay for those two reasons. Irrespective of what you've done. It's a spiritual war. And the number of true believers over in that part of the world is very tiny. Now, an Orthodox priest would probably say, but what do you mean, tiny? The whole country of Serbia is Christian. Right, it's just like the whole country of the United States is Christian. And, and so there's a, there's, there's, a, there's a massive spiritual warfare going on over there. And we as believers need to pray for the tiny, tiny little group of believers in Albania, the tiny little group in Kosovo, the tiny little group in Serbia. Because in the midst of chaos and tribulation and trial is when the church grows. When the church grows, persecution is not anything any of us look forward to, but that's when the church grows because you've got nowhere to go but to God. <laughs> We can't depend on our bank account. We can't depend on our uh, wonderful little house we're living in and all this stuff because we can lose all that. But God is there through it all. 
and he purifies the church. In the midst of this spiritual warfare that's raging across this planet, there are ways in which God expects us to be faithful and obedient. And I'd like to uh, end today by reading from that well-known 12th chapter of Romans because I think it kind of gives us a synopsis of what it means to live the Christian life faithfully to God. There are many synopses like this, but I like this one in particular this morning. Romans chapter 12, reading from verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. In our society, without, I don't want to make too many comments here, but this just comes out to me. In our society, I think many of us as Christians do not abhor what is evil because we have become inured to it. There's, uh, much of what is evil is just play. You know, it's, it's movies, it's, it's television, it's, it's music. It's, uh, it just seems like entertainment, but there's a lot of evil in entertainment which we as Christians should not, should not take part in, you know, allowing it into our being. Because we are in effect uh, saying thereby that we don't abhor it. Verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference, give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. It doesn't just say praying. It says devoted to prayer. Contributing to the needs of the saints. Practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. That can be pretty nitty-gritty in our lives. That can mean something as simple as obeying the speed limit. It can be something as seemingly hopeless as voting for the right person for office. Now, in many cases, we don't have much choice. But wherever there is um, a real choice, there are so many ways in which we can make this a real part of our lives. And I think that is essential for the Church of Jesus Christ to win the battle, to take the land, to accomplish all that God has called it to do. And that, I think, is so essential, to, particularly in this day, uh, because one of the things my father said, this is before he ever really became a, a Christian and was just trying to circumvent the idea, was that, well, you know, even when I was a kid, they were talking about the fact the Lord might come at any moment. For example, when World War I broke out, the war to end all wars, the Great War, the, you know, with this happening, who could ever think of the possibility of war again? Then World War II, and I mean, down through the pages of history, there have always been those times when somebody says, obviously the Lord is returning. But there are so many more signs today than ever in the past, in past before. Worldwide, I think the time is getting very close. 
And I think we need to be sure that we are part of the advancing church of Jesus Christ. Because it is growing, it is developing, it is progressing, God will see his kingdom accomplish its purpose. And he will do it through us as we are people of faith and obedience. Well, I would like to uh, pick up from there next week. There are some really wonderful admonitions in verse 6 of Joshua 22 that I'd like to emphasize, and so I'll do that.